Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. Welcome to the Hoban Minute. Today, Bob and I are talking about what's on the horizon for cannabis banking and finance, and we are joined by the one and only founder of the Alternative Finance Network, Mr. Scott Jordan. Scott, thank you for being here with us this evening. Thank you. Very excited to be here. And we are uh, we are enjoying a nice day here in Denver, Colorado. A little bit of snow, but things are turning around. We definitely feel spring in the air. We feel everything coming back to life. We're seeing that, of course, with NOCO happening next week. The excitement is building. I think big things are on the horizon. So let's start with the, the biggest thing, which was the change in the administration, uh, the Biden presidency, which started in January. What can we expect from that? What's changed in the last two and a half months, two months since the Biden administration took over in this context of cannabis banking and finance, Scott? Well, we've seen a lot more positive movement for uh, cannabis businesses in that many more people and companies are now wanting to get into the cannabis space in terms of lending. What I've done over the last seven years is I've put together a network of cannabis-friendly lenders, and today they total... 112 different uh, funding sources that will fund anywhere from real estate, working capital, equipment, accounts receivable, inventory financing, both THC and non-THC inventory financing. And what I found is, is that some of the larger institutions, some of the banks and credit unions are quietly sticking their toe in the water. We also now have access to life insurance money, which we never saw before which is really exciting because with that, it brings rates down into almost bank-like rates. We've got rates starting at 4.75% for low loan-to-value, good real estate, and long-term. It's no longer the hard money, two-year, one-year type of money. They're now going 20 to 25-year amortizations and five or 10 years out. We never saw that before. And so that's an exciting you know, development for cannabis companies that have been financing at very high rates previous to this, didn't have many options. They now can get equivalent type of uh, financing instead of just going to IIPR or one of the other sale leaseback companies, they now can come and get a mortgage and actually own the property that they're operating in. The other thing that's extremely exciting is we now have access to high leverage greenhouse financing. We now have a funding source that's willing to finance a hundred percent of the actual building and the land and then ninety percent of the fit out, meaning the lights and the tables and the inside. And he's willing to do large large amounts. He'll go up to twenty million dollars without hiccuping. So what that does is it allows the you know, the person without a lot of money that doesn't have 40 or 50% down, that doesn't want to give up 30 to 50% of their uh, equity in a grow, it allows them to get into growing for a very low amount of money, 5 or 10%. And so it totally opens up the area for some of the social equity candidates, and it opens it up for people that want to expand their operation out and people that can find inexpensive land. Because previous to this, the hard money private real estate owners were the ones that controlled 
who was going to get financed and where they were going to get financed. And they were always concerned with having a property out in a rural area, having to take it back and then look at having a problem reselling it. Now with this type of financing, you can be in any place uh, that where, where you can get inexpensive land and power and utilities to. So it totally is a game changer in terms of that. And it's extremely exciting for that. The other thing that I think is super exciting that we've been a part of is we're helping create revolving lines of credit for uh, cannabis business owners. Previous to this, never really had good access to revolving lines. And every business needs a revolving line of credit because every business has ups and downs in cash flow. Without a revolving line of credit, you're stuck at having to take money out of savings or sell additional equity or do something else. Now what they can do is they can come to us, get a revolving line. We're actually working on one that should close here in the next week or two for a very large, well-known multi-state operator at seven and a quarter percent and we're utilizing accounts receivable and we're utilizing inventory in order to fund that. So it's extremely uh, exciting the developments that have happened and we're really seeing marijuana business owners coming to parity with other business owners on these products and we expect even more exciting developments in the equipment area and other areas this year. Well, Scott, we got so much to talk about, and your energy is infectious. It reminds me of <laughs> Lieutenant Columbo. And, and one more thing, and I got one more thing. There, there's a lot of information you've got to share and a lot of things that I want to dive into. But let's take a walk down memory lane for a minute here. I, I want to ask you about how lenders are approaching the cannabis industry now versus when you first started in this industry. And it's important for our listeners to know that you've been doing this for a very long time. You and I have known each other for many, many years now. Very long time in cannabis 2009. years. Right. Yeah, 2009 is when I did my first loan. You're absolutely right. So let's talk about that. What was the perspective? How much arm twisting, et cetera, did you have to do to convince a lender at that point in time that this was a risk worth taking? And it was really the Wild West back then. Oh, yeah. So you'll love this story, Bob, because I don't know if you know the uh, kind of the inside scoop. So in 2009, I did my first cannabis loan through the dispensary I was a patient at. It was very difficult because it was what I call whack-a-mole kind of banking. You know, it'd be up for two weeks, then it'd be down. Then it'd be up for three weeks, and then they go to another credit union, another bank. So it was just too difficult. Uh, I did a few loans, but not that many. 2013, I went to work for a company uh, that did leasing, and my phone started ringing off the hook because we legalized adult use here for vertical integration. And so we needed to have capital, and we didn't have it. And I got to be known as the marijuana money man because I'd go to City Hall and the other meetings, and uh, you know, a few people knew me, and, and it kind of spread that way. So I saw that this was going to be a big deal. My bosses were not in favor of it. I put together a plan to find a non-plant-touching company. I figured if I could get a non-plant-touching company, I could make the argument, hey, we ought to go ahead and finance this because they're not a marijuana company. So I did that. So I chose what I thought would be the best non-plant touching company, a little company called Weed Maps, um, that wanted a couple million dollars in order to do some things eternally. They had very good financials. I went to a lender of mine that was doing alternative assets. They did like gentlemen's clubs and laundromats and things like that. 
after uh, three weeks of doing some legal work, he came back and he said, yes, we'll go ahead and we'll do one, but it better be a good one and it better not default. So I went back to Justin over at Weed Maps and I said, hey, how would you like to be able to borrow? He said, great. And we put together the first deal there. What, what I think was so interesting was he was complaining about the rate being high. It was in the upper teens at that time. I said, one day you will thank me because one day when you sell out, you will be glad you paid a small amount of interest compared to what you're giving up in equity. And sure enough, they got bought by a, that SPAC for $1.5 billion, and the 10% he would have given up was worth $150 million versus, I think, $650 or $700,000 in interest over three years. There was very few lenders back then. The lenders were high rate. Uh, they were very much in demand, and it was very, very difficult to get underwriting then was really kind of guesswork because the banking was always interrupted. You never had one bank that you could look at for 12 or 24 months, you know, worth of bank statements. The early lenders, I really give a lot of credit to really took a chance in, in financing many of these companies that they couldn't really get the visibility that they uh, needed to. It's now a lot easier because we have so many banks now. I was at a lunch two weeks ago where banks are fighting over accounts, and these are accounts that wouldn't have gotten banked a, a few years ago and that are still doing all cash, so it's very difficult for them to verify the source of the cash and the other things. Bankers are now buying lunch instead of um, the marijuana business owners begging for the opportunity to put their money into the bank. You know, it, 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 it's it's funny that you, you, you talk about that with the banking. I still hear from some people in the industry, banking's not available to the cannabis industry. Well, BS, this industry has banking. It's just costly and you have to have the relationships, but there is banking availability and you have to have banking to even make your business viable for a potential loan, a potential sale, so forth and so on. But as you sort of have, have seen the opportunities for lending and you've helped a number of our clients and worked with so many folks in this industry over the past several years. Tell us a little bit about why debt, why debt is a viable pathway. Because I think most people in the industry, they saw, oh, you've got to go public and bring all this equity dollars in and, you know, equity, equity, equity. But debt financing is extremely important, particularly when you break it down the way you described a few minutes ago, you know, for an infrastructure or for an inventory financing, rolling line of credit, so forth and so on. Let's talk a little bit about debt financing because there was an article that came out, oh, Eric, I don't know, was this maybe like three months ago? And I think it was Harvest or one of the large MSOs took on this outrageous debt APR percentage on their financing. And oh, the acreage deal. It was the, the acreage, acreage deal, deal. yes. Four-month deal for 60%, yes. Yeah, so maybe talk a little bit about debt financing. Use that as an example as to you know, whether that's a good deal or not. We don't know all the ins and outs. I guess my point is, why is debt financing, particularly for scenarios like that, really a viable alternative that'll keep you afloat? So for several reasons. Number one, the last example I gave, which would you rather do, pay $650,000 or give up $150 million? I mean, even me that doesn't have an MBA knows what number is better uh, for you. Also, it allows you to keep all of the control and all of the equity because once you give up equity, you can't get it back. When you're growing 
what you want to do is you want to be able to uh, not only keep control, but also decide what equipment you're going to use, what other things you're going to use. And debt financing is faster and easier by a lot. It's expensive to raise equity. It takes a long time. You've got to pick a lot of people. I was just at a big conference with Needham, which is a big investment banking firm. They have the top 20 MSOs there that are all pitching to the analysts and the other people that really control the viewpoint on these stocks. I had conversations with many of them. They brought me in there because I was the only guy talking about providing single digit rate debt. And they wanted that because it enhances the balance sheet. It, it enhances the income statement and it allows companies to grow in a normal fashion as opposed to having to sell their soul and dilute themselves uh, continually in order to get the assets that any other business would be allowed to acquire without having to give up equity. It's better fiscally, it's better control-wise, plus you get a tax deduction when it's appropriate, depending on if you're plant-touching or non-plant-touching, and you're not always making the decision based on can I afford it? You're making the decision based on, is this the best thing for my business? That's what you need to do in these early stages, particularly in the stage that we're in right now, Bob, where these guys, these big MSOs, the Trulies, the GTIs, the Crescos, they're amassing $100, $150 million in cash in these war chests to be able to do acquisitions. So if you're a smaller guy, meaning less than five shops, now is the time to be looking at making yourself pretty and ready for an acquisition because there's going to be competition out there in the stage of the business that we're at. These guys are, it's in a land grab situation. And if you have the locations and the team and the other things that they want, they're going to be paying a pretty penny right now because they're flush with cash and they want to give it up and they want to go ahead and grow in anticipation of either legalization or at least more and more adult use states and more and more medical states are coming on board and more and more medical cards are getting issued. So in a place like Oklahoma, 14% of the population has got medical cards. That's an amazing statistic. 5% used to be a good number. Now you've got almost triple that. Well, and, and you said something in there, Scott, that uh, sounds a lot like something I remember reading in one of your recent Forbes articles, Bob, which is 2021 is the year of industry consolidation. That is the mantra. And you've said that every year in the cannabis industry has a particular flavor. There's some pattern that emerges. I remember you throwing out that prediction Somewhat as I've thrown out that prediction about this is the year of fiber on the hemp side, that this is the year of uh, industry consolidation for marijuana. It sounds a lot like that with what Scott is saying about these war chests that the MSOs are pulling together. 100%. And, and, you know, the model follows. It is the year of fiber, by the way, but that's another story for another day. The year of consolidation, (laughs) the idea that here we are, look what happened in Canada. Not when they legalized it, just when Trudeau said... We're going to begin the path of creating a legal framework after he was put into that position as the leader of that country. The dollars began to flow in the door. And to your point, Scott, the dollars never went anywhere. They've just sort of been building up steam and momentum. And now we've got uh, a presidential administration 
that, at least in theory, is more friendly to this industry with a vice president who was a lead sponsor on legislation that deschedules cannabis, which again, in theory, supports a U.S.-based robust commercial industry. And everybody's been positioning for this post-prohibitionist environment anyway as an investment perspective. So it really is that year. That's why we see a lot of this SPAC activity and things. All of what we saw happen in Canada when Trudeau came into power through their public markets, the Canadian exchange and the Toronto exchange, that is going to look like small potatoes when there is federal change here. The dollars that flow into this space, let alone the dollars that are in the sidelines rating right now to be deployed, it really is going to be remarkable. <laughs> Scott, I can't stop thinking about the marijuana money, man, because believe it or not, for, for you listeners out there, there were these things called DVDs. You used to put them into a machine and you could watch, you could watch a video. And it doesn't seem that long ago, but there was a marijuana money, man, DVD that I still have on my desk at home. Uh, that was awesome because you methodically walk through is that this is how you could obtain capital or financing for elements of your business. And it was spot on, and you continue to do that to the to this day. So it, it, it's really good to connect. But Eric, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about banking and sort of go down that hole a little bit and get Scott's take on that. So, what do you think about the state of banking? Well, and I'll interject before we even we even go there. I know that uh, you can't talk about banking in the cannabis space without the name Sunday Seafried coming up. And, and Scott, I, I wondered if you might be able to give us a little bit of insight on the news that came out fairly recently that she would be stepping away from Partner Colorado Credit Union after a 20-year career. Can you give us some kind of inside scoop here on the Hoban Minute exclusively about where that move came from and what might be on the horizon for her in particular? Sure. Well, Sunday and I go way back. Uh, we actually met before she started doing banking back in 2014. I remember her sitting in my boardroom. I remember my two colleagues there just amazed that she was going to consider banking the industry when it had such a bad reputation. She's a pioneer and she's a fighter and has done an amazing job here in terms of putting together a compliant program going through a dozen different banker exams and coming out without a scratch at all. She continues to do things by the book. She's expanded and has now uh, reached in many other states in the U.S. And we actually had lunch about a week ago. It was great sitting down with her. And her next step is to get into the area that I'm in right now, which is financial services, which is where the big money is. She's going to use the contacts and what she's established there at Partner Colorado to serve the industry, both for lending as well as for merchant services and other financial services that she is going to be the maverick on. She's an incredible woman, and I really look forward to seeing what she's going to do as she launches this company and goes ahead and revolutionizes and continues to equalize and provide equal access or at least a better level of parity for marijuana business owners to get the services, get the banking, get the full breadth of things that they need in order to operate a business. I'm a big fan of hers, and I've seen her put that program together, 
And hopefully I'll be helping her raise some money in order to be able to relend out because the appetite that the industry is going to have is going to way overwhelm the amount she's going to be able to provide through normal bank means there. The, the, the uh, industry has a, a voracious appetite for capital. It's a capital intensive business. People are expanding. They need access to debt capital whenever possible. And I can't think of a better person to be able to do that both compliantly and also with the customer base she has than her. If you notice as well, if you read LinkedIn, that Tina Spraga from GFA Credit Union also is going to be stepping aside from day-to-day depository activities to go get into financial services. So I wouldn't be surprised if these two ladies are going to connect up somehow together since they have a long history together. GFA was one of uh, the first licensees of Partners Expansion Program out in Massachusetts. That's good insight. Definitely telling of the times and and, and 2021 is off to a a roaring start in in so many different ways. Eric just noted to me that the marijuana banking bill will be advanced, what, this week in Congress. So that should also accelerate some of the things we're talking about. Well, I have some strong feelings about that, which uh, I'll express to you if, if you'd like, but go ahead. No, tell us your thinking on on the marijuana banking bill as you understand it before we run out of time, because it is an interesting perspective and it it is something that's happening in real time. Well, I've got some inside information on that. And here's the deal with that. Yes, we have a lot of momentum and a lot of people would like to see the Safe Banking Act pass. The problem is Mike Crapo. Senator Mike Crapo from Idaho hates marijuana is a staunch opponent of it, and he heads up the banking committee. As long as he heads up that banking committee, you will not see movement in getting that passed in the substance that it is now. He may have to compromise on something, but you will not see wholesale changes in that. And as it is now, you can get banks in any state here that marijuana is legal in if you have good records, and if you show up and follow what banks want you to follow. I was actually talking to a guy that told me he was still banking in cash here in Colorado, and I was incredulous. I was like, what do you mean? you got partners, you got Champion, you've got Harry, you've got eight banks that I could name and probably other ones that are just doing it quietly. He said, because I've got 17 LLCs and they wanted to charge me $1,000 per LLC, and I didn't want to go ahead and do that. I'm collapsing my LLCs right now, and I'm going to go ahead and use a new bank that's on the block, which I thought was great. They were actually sponsoring this lunch. Big shout-out to Tom uh, Bietenhoff over at Sunflower. Thank you for being the latest one to enter into the industry and provide multi-state banking. He said it was too expensive. I said, but what about the shrinkage? What about the counting? The recounting, the going down and paying your taxes with two guys that are armed, what is that costing you? And, you know, he just shook his head and said it was too much. So I think that's the pennywise and pound foolish way to look at, uh, at doing banking. You can get it as long as you're, you have the right books and the right information and will follow what the bankers need to keep them out of trouble. The problem is that, an individual banker, an individual employee is 
personally responsible if the bank gets hit with money laundering or other violations. Insurance doesn't cover that. So as a result, you've got to be extra cautious and extra careful, let alone making a mistake and going to jail or having an expensive lawsuit that you've got to fund on your own and getting banned from the banking industry. The penalties are draconian for bankers that make a mistake. And so that's one of the reasons why the compliance is more expensive and hence the rates are more expensive because you've got to protect yourself and protect the system from illegal dollars getting into the system. Well, Scott, we so appreciate you bringing your insight. And I do want to say to folks out there who are interested in following up with you and keeping track of everything you're doing or going and attaining your services, while the DVD may be hard to come by, you can, uh, you can find information at altfinnet.com. And we thank you so much for stopping by today and sharing those inside scoops and those Hoban Minute exclusives. And anybody listening, there's some real nuggets of wisdom here on the banking side. Scott, thank you for joining us. And on this St. Patrick's Day, as the Irish saying goes, may the best day of your past be the worst day of your future. I love it. Thank you very much. Yes, happy St. Patty's Day to you and all the listeners out there. Thank you, Bob. It's, it's been a pleasure and always good to know you. As soon as it gets warmer, we got to get out on the kayak, all right? You got it. We'll be there. Promise me that, all right? In front of the audience here now, this is a worldwide <laughs> promise. <laughs> Done deal. Thank you, Bob.